0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, I don't know, 60 minutes. As you know, we love our indie pop on this show. My God, do we love indie pop. But we also love a special guest and this week it is going to be The turn of a legend, it is going to be Douglas T. Stewart, the main man, or one of them anyway, of the BMX bandits all the way from Scotland. Um, So you get the gist, after about five minutes of casual chat, Douglas then started choking on a biscuit. I was slightly worried this could have been the end, but he recovers well and then he starts talking about his hay fever. But once we're over the biscuit and the hay fever, we get down to the musical influences and uh, what shaped his life. You'll never guess, but he'll tell you in just the next few minutes. Anyway, sit back, enjoy. Um,
1: during the school holidays, the programme The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe" would be shown and it had an incredible soundtrack. And I was probably, I don't know, something like six or seven when I first heard this music. And it sort of made me feel kind of sad, but I liked the feeling. Yes. And I think that's been a bit of a kind of cornerstone in a lot of my musical tastes. Because if you listen to that, you can almost hear a bit of some of the kind of pet sounds either Brian Wilson in it, you can hear bits of John Barry and Ennio Morricone. So an awful lot of the music that I went on to love that really affected me It's as if this was a sort of thing like, from now on, when you hear things that are a bit like this, that's going to touch your heart. And um, so that was a big thing. Another big thing was my parents sort of bought these little EPs, which had storybooks attached to them for various Disney films, including The Jungle Book and Mary Poppins. And I love the songs, and I still do. I love the songs in those. Um, and then when I guess I got a little bit older, yeah, I started to get interested in people like David Bowie and Mark Bowling. My first concert um, that my sister took me to see was Mud. Um, that's right, that's right, that's right. I really yes. love your tiger, right? That's neat, that's neat, that's neat. Yes, really it,
0: it. It, it it was a catchy song. Did you also like the secrets that you keep? Because that was a Mud song, which I thought was quite brilliant as well. Which um... yeah, I mean,
1: I, I liked at that time. I loved all Oliver Records, and I had a a Mud on the Road badge, which was a clever play on the the road sign saying Mud on the Road. Yes, was touring. Um, my big cousin took me to see Mark Boland's last ever UK tour uh, with the Damned.
0: Oh nice Just going Just going slightly back Because you were talking about Sort of children's Kind of TV theme songs There was two others That I can remember That I loved One was White Horses there was, Yeah
1: okay. And the other
0: one Was The Flashing Blade Which was very yeah. dramatic Can you remember those two? One
1: And all But yeah They had a big impression on me Also the theme Tune for Bill and Sebastian La 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 Which again, it was so sad sounding but beautiful. It was tragic. The horses, incredibly beautiful tune, flashing blade, really stirring. And I guess a lot of people of our kind of shared age, these programs and the music in them had a real deep impact. You know, they weren't just jaunty, throwaway, you know, uh, theme tunes that were just put together in some sort of panic or we need to get something oh this is current let's get this they were really great pieces of music and the scoring was often great as well not just the main themes so yeah yeah and since that music has continued to be you know a big influence in probably pretty much everything i do you know um along with kind of pop records
0: so when did you start to sort of find your voice you know singing wise did you sort of I mean, were you somebody that it came kind of naturally to? Did you used to sing all the time when you were growing up? Yeah, again,
1: it's strange because my sister talks about a kind of contradiction, but I was quite a shy, um, introverted child in a lot of ways and quite reflective. And I didn't really necessarily spend a lot of time going out playing with the other kids. It wasn't like they rejected me. I just wasn't particularly interested in what the other boys particularly of um, my kind of age, were interested in so much. I had no interest in kicking a ball. About I'd much rather play with dolls and make perfume and uh, petals in the garden and you know watch magical films and TV and listen to music. And um, so yeah, I I I was a little bit kind of separate, but I had a thing that a slight kind of entertainer gene that I would um, write little songs and. You know, I would get sent round from class to class. My good friend Norman Blake, who, of course, has been a BMX fan, it's also a teenage fan club. His first memory is me getting sent round uh, classes. He was in a different classroom. He was slightly younger. Uh, And he'd go, oh, Douglas Stewart's here to do a little show for us. He's written some songs. He's going to do some impersonations. And then I would start writing actual little mini plays, which would have a song in them. And um, I didn't play any instruments particularly, but, you know, I could think up melodies and funny words.
0: Yes. And
1: in playtime, I would get put on the school wall and I would do little shows occasionally. Um, but I wasn't like a, you know, a showbiz kid either. My parents weren't really that kind of, we weren't that kind of family. But just somehow I fell into it. And, of course, when I became an adolescent, and I kind of, I guess, or a young adult, um, I liked Frances McKee very much I became friends with Frances McKee and um, she said she'd like to be in a group and I thought well if I was in a group with Frances I could hang around with her a lot more yes and uh, so I formed a group um, was um, like, well, and pass.
0: was she and was she a, one of the cool kids at school and um, were you about no, how old were you was she that... wasn't
1: in school as me but we went to a drama club and oh. um the East End of Glasgow together. And when I met her, I was just like, wow, she's not like any of the girls in my school. And uh, she's really interesting. And she says controversial, shocking things uh, to make people laugh. And uh, we l- we liked a lot of the same music. And yeah, I just was like, well, I know my friends, Norman and Sean, are both really musical. be able to help me out. And um, I could form a group. So I formed a group, basically partly because I liked music so much; it meant so much to me. But that was the sort of like kick I needed. Form <coughs> a group, I can hang out with Francis more, and yes. then of course she ended up leaving the group eventually and running off with Eugene to do other things.
0: It's just the way of life, isn't it? But look, oh. so so look when well, I because we're vaguely the same age, interestingly. Well, not oh. that interesting, but um, because we're at that age, I mean. I came sort of from a sort of country, sort of working class background. I mean, no one in played music or, or formed bands. We just played football all the time and kicked the ball around and did stuff like that. So it sounds like your environment and community were full of sort of people who'd go on to do great things. To be honest, I don't know many people in my that's background wonderful. who went on to do great things. Like, and uh, So Francis, Sean and uh, Norman. Norman as well. I mean, that's quite an impressive thing. It's It's like... There must have been something in the water other than fluoride.
1: Sorry, we were weirdos and misfits and we were kind of drawn together because of that. You know, we didn't, it wasn't we thought we were better or superior. We had had quite a lot of friends, you know, we were relatively popular weirdos. But I think there was a thing that we all understood each other and just chance. I sort of think if we hadn't met each other, I wonder if any of us would have individually went on to do the things that we did possibly we may have but I think we gained a real strength we really encouraged each other and we supported each other because I'm technically not um, the technically minded music wise or using technology like Norman and Sean totally covered those spaces and um, although I was probably the shyest most introverted of the three of us I was also the one who wasn't frightened to go up and make a fool of himself and, you know, dance about and perform in front of people. Yeah. So we all gained something from each other.
0: And was the drama, you know, looking back, did you realise that the drama classes were quite critical to your musical development?
1: Well, no, Norman and Sean weren't so involved in that. Um, that wasn't so much their thing. But, yeah, but it was critical of meeting, yeah, definitely Frances, because just she had a such wicked sense of humour, and she gave me something I wanted to write about. Um, it was an interesting club because, like other people, Billy Boyd, who's, you know, became quite a successful actor and things like the Lord of the Rings movies and things, he was a good friend of ours who was involved in that club as well and also was sort of interested in making music. He looks a lot younger. He's, he's a few years younger, but he's not that much younger than us. He just has that kind of look. He's a kind of Scottish Michael J. Fox in that sort of a way, you know. He can play. He can play younger. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's one of those things that a lot of people, when they come from kind of ordinary working-class backgrounds as we did, they don't necessarily have people encouraging them. So they, they have just people going, "What are you doing? That's stupid. That's embarrassing all the time." But if you meet a bunch of other a, a kind of outcasts like yourself and weirdos who are going, this is great, this is so much fun. Yeah, we should we should totally do that. Um you know it's it's a kind of fortunate thing. And yes. then you start to just do this stuff. And then you discover other people are going, yeah, that's good. That's interesting. You're like, what? They like it too.
0: Yeah, and and at this point, it's this is kind of eighty one, eighty two that you sort of formed the band. I mean, what was I mean? I from that period, I mean, we'd got the Falkland crisis, which was going terribly well, and oh God, it was horrendous. Um, and then you, you know, there was a lot of unemployment, and and you know, the the world that was kind of job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes, and there was a sort of sense, especially if you were part of that kind of the left movement, left of centre movement, mm-hmm. that, you know, you were just going to end up sort of being unemployed and, and no one cared. And so the outlook wasn't that that bright, was it? What was it like with you and your community? Did it Was, was there a feeling, a despondency that made you think, well, there's no point sort of worrying about that career because that doesn't exist as in a, you know, job and that world. So we might as well stick with sort of plan A, which is music.
1: I think I was a bit of a fantasist. So I sort of... Um... Just sort of thought to myself, well, yeah, I'm going to do this. Of course, I'm, you know, of course, I'm going to do this. I'll probably have my own Saturday night TV show in the near future. I'll be in films. What would I say when I get my first Oscar? I just (laughs) had this delusional belief in myself and my friends. And, you know, as I say, I came from a very uh, ordinary working class background where people didn't tend to do these things. But Sheena Easton uh, went to the same high school as Norman and I, and she'd sort of done it. And I think in some way that kind of um, was an encouragement, even though we might not seem that connected as artists. Mm. Because I remember she was a bit older and, you know, teachers saying, you know, that's Sheena, or as she was called then, she's got a real hit for herself. She's kidding herself on. And then witnessing the start of... Oh, she was right, and they were wrong. So, yeah. Um, so, so we just thought, yeah. I guess it was a bad situation. It was a bad times. So we didn't totally live in the real world. We would go and kind get of rallies and, you know, events, um, protesting against things that we didn't like. But in a way, we also lived in our own fantasy world because we sort of saw the real world as being a depressing and dull. Place with little hopes so let's create our own world
0: well absolutely and I, I can remember dear old um, this is Sheila Easton isn't it Sheila who was the one she was she was in that Sheena, Sheena Easton she was the one who was in a programme with um, oh god the woman from That's Love. Life wasn't she yeah
1: I think it was called The Big Time the, it was Esther Ransom The
0: Esther Ransom world yes
1: single um, which we knew as 95 and it was known as uh, Morning Train in America, that was a number one hit all around the world it was a big record, in fact it was probably bigger in America than it was in the UK, you know and she went on to make uh, like records with Prince and you know I had I sang a James Bond theme tune
0: Yes, well absolutely I mean she was, she was the business I mean it was... Um... Yeah, she was on that, I think she was on the album Sign of the Times, wasn't she? Um, kind of duetting with her, him. And also, um, I did go and see a musical like 53rd and 3rd Street and um, or Something Avenue. God, I should have remembered this, shouldn't I? I never thought we'd be talking about her, but it was like, I kind of remember she's gone into musicals, hasn't she? So yes, there you go. And then, I mean, did you, going back to the band, did you get a sound that was quite, you know easy to begin with? Did did you sort of sort of create something that made you all think God, we just created a you know
1: a song. Well I think we've all had good melodies and I still think that's the number one thing for me, the melodic content we didn't really totally know what we were aiming for or how to get it at the start um, and that goes into past the early Pretty flower stuff that we were all involved in together and then when the beam Expanded Storm those early records weren't necessarily a total reflection on what I would like to be making, or the kind of music um, that I really, really wanted to do production-wise and sound-wise. But um, it wasn't going to stop us from doing something. It's a bit like you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Martin Scorsese when they were all young. We didn't have the chops to make the kind of films they wanted to make, but we would make stuff with plastic toys and our little cine camera in their garage, and they would learn. And then they would start to be able to do the things that they actually wanted to do.
0: Yes. And also, because cause for me, you know, indie pop roughly runs from the, what, the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smith, I have to confess. Mm. That's not a watertight theory. But it was a kind of a golden time for sort of indie music, wasn't it? And, Even though you'd sort of formed at the beginning of the 80s, it took a while before you brought out your kind of first LP. Was it just a case of trying to, um, yes, put together either the band or sort of just get together enough songs to make the album?
1: Well, in 1985, Francis went off to work with Eugene and they became the Vaselines. And I was sort of left thinking, I don't know what to do. And Sean said, well, why don't we start doing a new thing? And together we came up with um, the quite silly name of BMX Bandits. And we had some songs and we recorded them really low-fi for almost no money. And we gave a tape to a bunch of people or sent tapes to a bunch of people who we really liked. Like we sent one to Jonathan Richmond. We managed to find an address for him. We sent one to Dan Tracy and Joe Head of Television Personalities and Joe and the Swell Maps, of course. Um, Stephen Pastel, and all of the people go back to us. Everybody replied, saying we enjoyed that. And Stephen Pastel, his reply was the best of all, because he said, I just started a new record label, and we'd like BMX Expanse to make one of the first singles. And that, so that happened really quickly. That single came out, I think, quite early, 1986, and it went to number one in the rough, Trade indie charts and got loads of playing Radio One. Got daytime playing Radio One, yes. and we were like, "Wow, why weren't we doing this earlier?" When we did the other band with Francis and stuff, why did at that time we were almost just kind of content to be a big fish in our little pool of Bell Cell? But suddenly, and I think it was partly through encouragement of Sean. Sean had started his own project with Soup Dragons. And he had the drive to go up and say, hi, Bobby Gillespie, um, I'm in this band called The Soup Dragons, are really brilliant, here's a tape of us, I think you should let us play with you. And it worked. And then because it worked for Sean, I think I thought, well, why should, I, why should we, any of us be frightened to do that? Because people are actually sometimes more open to new things than you think we're gonna
0: be. Yes, absolutely. And also it was quite a, I mean, there'd been the punk period, which is kind of well documented. And then that strange, the strange moment of post-punk. But then indie, you know, did sort of produce all these sort of the fanzine world. Plus there was definitely a scene and then there was all these kind of rather quirky record labels that had started, including 53rd and 3rd. But there was also the Vindaloo Records and the Pink Label. And kitchenware yeah. records and creation, and obviously you'd got sort of bands like the Jasmine Minx and the Orchids had sort of been starting to sort of get rolling as well. I mean, there was a, there was yeah. most most a lot of people I have interviewed mentioned three bands as being really important: the Smiths, the June Brides, and Orange Juice. Yes, so um, so there was definitely yes, there yes.
1: was June Brides never had a commercial success, but the others did. Yes, and they were They felt very important and very vital at the time, but for some reason, They never had um, that sort of crossover kind of success
0: that others had. It was—it's was a tragic—it's was tragic to think that they missed it. But yeah, so when you with the Soup Dragons, who were also happening at the same time, was it because you had you know Sean, who sort of obviously went on to big things? Did you? I mean. Because a lot of people get a band and they have that dynamic. And then when members leave, it's quite difficult for the people left because then you have to fill those spaces. So, uh, yes, yeah, so you having lost Francis, that must have felt a bit like discombobulating, really.
1: Yeah, but of course, the, I guess really the thing in Chinese culture, the, it's the same word for crisis and, and opportunity. It depends how you look at the situation. And yeah, it felt like, oh, no, my heart's broken but this is an opportunity to do something new. You know, I can't do that other thing anymore because it doesn't really exist. So I can either just give up or do something new. And with the encouragement, particularly of Sean, that's what I did when we started BMX Bandits. Then the Super dragons started to just be too successful to be BMX Bandits and Super dragons. So Sean left and Jim McCullough then kind of left with him. But Norman had came into Beam Bandits by this point, and then that continued to be almost like the story of BMX Bandits. Um, other people would become successful in their own right and have to move on. They would still occasionally return and contribute to things. Norman and Sean both have contributed to some of the most recent things we've done. But it didn't appear like a crisis in my head when, You know, Norman had been the other main writer in the band and he had to move on because I'd dealt with that situation before. And then Francis McDonald becomes the other main writer, and then he leaves. It never, it just always seems like <clears throat> it seems like an opportunity to try something new.
0: Yes, did you? Um, I mean, did I get the impression there was never sort of it was it a, a because most bands are a bit edgy, aren't they? And there's kind of issues, even 30 years later. Um, it doesn't sound like you. you're one of those people who have sort of major falling outs and major issues with, with kind of members of bands and ex-members.
1: Generally not. no. no. <clears throat> I'm just going to take a wee drink. <clears throat> I've got bad fever, so...
0: Oh, God, yes, I I'll remember.
1: I'll good again soon, I promise.
0: Yes, well, it's June, isn't it? It's never a good time. Yeah. So,
1: uh, uh, yeah, as I was saying, it's, um, yeah, we never really had the big dramas and fallouts. I think there was a thing of, we had a sort of um, thing where we actually liked to see each other succeed. Yes. You know, so if Sean was having a big success or later on Norman was having a big success, it sort of felt like... A success for our side. It sort of felt like we were sort of in the same team. I mean, I could take no, you know, actual credit for anyone else's success, but it felt good. It felt good if I saw Sean or Norman or later on people like Bill and Sebastian on top of the pops because it was like that's our side, yes. you know. And we've scored a goal. It's funny because I'm not interested in football, but there's a parallel there of. We we're we're the weirdos, we're the outsiders, and our team are scoring goals here.
0: Yes, well, that's a very enlightened way to look at it because I don't think many many people can cope with other people's success, can they? You know that often kind of chews them up a little bit and makes them feel quite like God. That should have been me. I'm going to kind of have to go and see my therapist again. But um, you you were just fine. I'm still
1: just believe that I'm not. I'm not a household name and I don't, I'm on TV show and I'm not sold a million records. In some ways I still am like, how did that not work out quite how I planned it? But I don't feel bitter and I don't feel other people's success is the reason that I've not done those things. You know, and I still sort of go, well, I've done what I've done and I'm pretty happy with it.
0: Yeah. And um, the the other thing that, that sort of, I hadn't realised and appreciated so much. You know, there was like the gatekeepers we had of the the sort of especially that period of the eighties and probably the nineties and on who knows what's happening now it's just confusing but um you know you you know we had the John Peel show which was quite critical and and he had a certain market even though that was much smaller than Steve Wright in the afternoon and then you had you know, like the NME and, and Melody Maker and Sounds, which were quite big and record, uh, record mirror but also you had all these kind of indie club nights and venues all around the country in every town and city didn't you so a band could, if they got a bit of a John Peel play, could then sort of get a few bookings around the place. Did that kind of work in your favor? Um
1: well Janice Long, to be honest, was her big supporter. I mean Janice Long had the show directly before John Peel when we were making our early records. And um she was in a kind of spot where she was probably playing some stuff. That was a little bit more pop than probably a lot of what John Peel was playing. Yes. And um, that actually probably suited us quite well. You know, like Jan Long was probably more supportive of people like Orange Juice and stuff like that than Peel was at that time. Um, so she was such a big supporter. You know, she would go on record review shows and have like massive arguments about why BMX Bandits were brilliant and life-affirming and special. So we had someone kind of fighting in our corner on in the radio. But we also, for some reason, BMX Bandits were not loved by the music press. And, um, you know, the Soup Dragons, when they appeared, they were really loved by the music press at the start. You know, their first flexi-disc was declared the best single of all time by the NME. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think one would say was... A fairly ridiculous sort of statement. But our first single, you know, the reviews were saying this could be the worst record of all time. But there was something quite liberating about that because <laughs> yes. we didn't... I, I honestly wasn't upset. I was like, wow. What an accolade. they not saying it's okay. for saying it's the most annoying thing we've ever heard. Wow, you know. And we were sort of... um, Creativity-wise, able to almost fly under a radar and just get on with what we were doing rather than do the thing of, yeah, we've got all this press approval, so we should keep going in that direction. We could just do more of what we wanted. And then eventually uh, we made a track called Serious Drugs. Alan McGee signed us to Creation on the back of that track. And then the press decided they loved us because they loved that track. But I don't think we would have necessarily got to that point if we'd had all of that adoration and kind of scrutiny earlier on. We were just sort of people who came to our shows, really loved us, a lot of fanzine writers, eh, broadsheet kind of press writers loved us, but the music press didn't get it. Yes. And, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing for us.
0: Yeah. Because you did you did Three songs. <laughs> Oh, I've got an echo. This is marvellous. Try, try not getting too much feedback. But you did three songs on 53rd and 3rd records. Um, did you... Was that, you know, was there a reason you didn't stick with them or was it the case that actually they'd folded by then?
1: No, they folded after their first single oh. and they weren't really doing albums. They weren't really an album label as such. So we had plans to do an album round about the time that the label folded. Yes. And in we ended up self-financing it. So the label sort of folded about 87. And uh, 89, we released self-released our own album, which we called C86 as a bit of a dig at the NME because they'd had their C86 uh, cassette and we weren't on it. So we thought, you know, well, we'll show them. We'll make our own one and we'll do all the tracks on it. Yes. and So... Yeah, we released our own album, and suddenly we discovered uh, we were getting letters from people who were promoters in Norway and Japan saying, we love the band, you're back with an album, please come out. In Britain, we couldn't get signed. We sent something like uh, about 100 cassettes of two new tracks we'd recorded, uh, Disco Girl and uh, Whirlpool, and we only got one reply from all of those cassettes. And the reply was from Subway Records, who said, if we'd been offered beam expanders two years ago, we would have been like, wow, this is incredible. But now the ship's sort of sailed, so we can't really do it. And so we just did it ourselves. And then that led to things like, I guess we kept going in the face of adversity, we got to go to places like Japan, build up audiences elsewhere, just keep touring. We were had more people coming to their shows than we'd ever had in Britain. And then Creation Records suddenly were interested in that opened up a whole new chapter for us.
0: Yes, because just going through it, you had one on Avalanche Records, Totally Groovy li- Live, then C86, which was on Click. I'm guessing this is your label. Then the vinyl Japan album of Star Wars. So that was up to... Did
1: I get that right? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, give me a wee bit of editing here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the thing, we had a live album which was going to be released on 53rd and 3rd. But, um, yeah, 53rd and 3rd folded. So that never happened and we never got to do a studio album for them. Yeah, then Vinyl Japan, that happened. Just as I say, people from Japan and other countries started to get interested. And um, we made the album for Vinyl Japan and then creation. heard her song, Serious Drugs, and wanted to be involved. The live album was a strange situation, but uh, it was recorded. And the next thing we knew, a friend of ours was in a record shop in Edinburgh called Avalanche. Uh, Andy phoned us up saying, oh, did you know you've got a live album coming out next week? And we were like, what? No one had contacted us to say we were planning to release it. And so although we were there and we were aware it was being recorded and we helped mix it, it was just a thing of some of the people who'd been involved in 50 and 53rd, not Steve Pastel or David from his shop assistants, had decided, I know what we could do, we could sell some of this stuff off to random people and not tell the bands and try and get some cash out of it. And that's exactly what happened, the album came out, they weren't even going to tell us, but we found out by chance, and um, that, was a, that was a strange experience, but people seemed to enjoy the record, so we didn't get too angry although we never got paid a penny of royalties, of course, for it, but...
0: <laughs> yes, tricky one. Yes, we did We did love the shop assistants. I know John Peel loved them as well, but um, always a, di- a difficult one, manoeuvre in that world. Because the other thing that knocks a lot of bands out... Oh, sorry, what are you Steven,
1: saying? David from the shop assistants and Stephen were in no way involved in those dodgy dealings. You know, they were. they were, I think, quite appalled that that happened you know because we didn't know about it either it's yes. just like you know someone else who was involved in the kind of a um, more day-to-day business side not what the kind of creative side yes they just decided well oh, for some tapes lying here i could make some money out of these and not tell anyone else i
0: know so. i think it was hunter s thompson he had acquired into the Something like, I don't know, the, the, the music business is a cruel and shallow money or money trench, a long plastic yeah. hallway where thieves. Oh, yes, this is it. Thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dog, dogs. There's also a negative side. So look, what the other thing is, sorry about that quote, um, is that you know, like the musical scenes often do knock a lot of bands out who don't realise at the time. But you know, the, the indie scene really did change in about eighty seven, eighty eight with ecstasy. So obviously, the dance scene came quite big, and the Soup Dragons were right there, and then Primal Scream and Happy Mondays and all that kind of groovy stuff. And then grunge came along that knocked a, a lot of people out as well. So you managed to navigate those waters well. But then that early nineties after after we had had Kurt Cobain, um, yes. Britpop. So creation records were definitely, they were waxing at that stage in a way that only the moon could appreciate.
1: Yeah, it's strange. And I mean, Oasis's first tour was supporting BMX Bandits. You know, yeah. they'd been signed to creation and Alan wanted to put them out on tour and uh, I hadn't heard them. And uh, But I liked Alan an awful lot and he said as a favour to me, would you take them out on tour? And so we did a bunch of uh, gigs with um, a band called Eighteen Wheeler, and uh, opening the show was Oasis. And um, so, yeah, where are they we now?
0: Well, yes, I know? Yes, that's the. Yes, I have to Google that one. Um, so yeah, you did three records during for creation during the, the glory period. The John Major years, really. Let's face it, Um, up to up to Team Tony, yeah. So at that stage, did you feel much more stable um, as a band because a you were on this label? Things were definitely happening there, and um, yeah, there was definitely another wave of you can put on top of the pots without seeing another guitar band until you saw a guitar band with a small orchestra.
1: Yeah, it was a strange time. It was a strange time. I think Alan and McGee really thought BMX Bandits were going to be one of the major concerns of creation records. He was convinced we were a hit band, you know. Uh, serious Drugs was ready to go as a single. Uh, a couple of DJs in Radio 1 said it was going to be their record of the week, and it was going to be A-listed. And then it got banned because we had an anti-drugs week. Oh. And you know, you get the thing of certain records that are banned, they become so infamous, they become number one. Well, didn't. Ours just kind of sort of disappeared and never bothered the charts because um, uh, it just wasn't getting played. And there were other things that were getting played, even other things that were actually pro drugs, where well, their song wasn't. Yeah, uh, Like Wood still got played, they didn't seem to notice that that was a kind of pro drug song. And, um, yeah, so we never quite delivered, I think, the hits that Alan thought we were going to but You know, Alan still says he's very proud of BMX Bandit's records for creation. I am as well. He often cites serious drugs as like, he does things like, you know, the 10 best creation singles, and he'll put, you know, serious drugs in that. Um, We've still got a good relationship. We didn't fall out. But the unfortunate thing is particularly for Alan, Alan got ill Oasis were becoming more and more popular and suddenly to the kind of accountants who, were, accountants who were taking over a band like BMX Bandits really were not a priority and so we kind of got dropped
0: Yes I guess the party had also slightly finished by 18... 1996, 97, hadn't it? You know, the, the, that kind of I suppose that kind of glory period, things would begin to change again, weren't they? Yeah. And did you, you know, when you did theme park, which was the, the third and final one with creation, did you feel things were starting to sort of fade by then?
1: Not, <coughs> not so much fade, but um, definitely maybe lose their direction, uh, because as I say. Alan had really went into the background. Um, we liked other people who worked to creation a lot, but he was so behind the band and believing the band so much. And suddenly, you know, he was gone. Before he would do things like, you know, we would go down with a new track, and he would call everybody into the office and play it over big speakers and go, "I want everyone working on this track, totally committed. This is brilliant. We need a support of this. But so suddenly that was gone, and um, yeah, we Alan and I, I think we had a phone conversation and we just mutually agreed it probably was a good time to just kind of call it quits with a chance to get out, not be stuck in a contract that we didn't want to be with, with Sony or whatever in the future. So we got out then,
0: yes, because a lot of bands. That I've noticed have, have got that four to five year narrative where they do, they have the first 12 months, then the first, the album, album. often in that world, you know, John Peel session and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then it was the second, or if they're very lucky, the third album. And then it's like, actually, we still haven't made any money. Let's just give it up. But you, you got to three albums with creation. So that's, you know, that's in itself is a kind of a lifetime for a lot of bands. And then yeah, and then at but, that stage I was just going to say did the lineup change again after 96
1: um all the three different creation albums had different variations in the lineup again you know we were always sort of from early days onwards kind of we weren't like a regular band you know if you went to see <clears throat> the smiths for instance it would be the same four people a lot of other bands, one person might change. Oh, they've got a new drummer. Yes. But for us, it was almost like sort of like a musical extended family, as much as a group. And it continues to be that way, you know, it's like you could go and see BMX Venice playing in 1987 and Norman Blake would be there on stage and then he would leave the band in the early 90s. And then you went to see us two years ago and you go, Wait a minute, that's Norman Blake playing guitar. I thought he left the band in 1992. Why is he playing guitar? Oh, and Jim McCullough, he left the band in 1987. He's playing. Well, yeah, Sean Dixon's playing omnicord. You know, so it's like people aren't there all the time. But it's still this kind of extended musical family where people sometimes drift back in and we discover new people who become yes. part of the family. Well,
0: and then be, I mean, i <coughs> the
1: yeah. constant, I guess.
0: I was, I was, you know, there is that famous Marky e. Smith quote, isn't there, about if it's me and your granny, it's still the fool. I suppose it's the same with you and being expandix really, isn't it?
1: It's became our way, definitely. You know, now, eh, you know, I remember I was making an album which eh, is called My Chain, which is eh, coming out in vinyl for the first time ever very soon. And um, that was back in 2005, that album was released. And I remember after I recorded it, Francis MacDonald, who'd been a really major force in the band, songwriting and arranging and things, left after being in the band for something like 18 years. And so I was making this new thing, and I was like, maybe this is really a Douglas Stewart album. And I said that to a few people, including ex-members of the Being Bandits, and I'm like, well, that's a BMX Bandits album, then. You know, it's, it, where does BMX Bandits and Douglas end and begin, you know?
0: Yes. Well, I guess in a way, did you, you are more like a David Bowie, aren't you? It is kind of your band.
1: It is, and people see it that way. But that doesn't mean that I don't really value other people's contributions. You know, I really, really do. And I don't necessarily write you know, all the songs ever. On the last album we released, there was a song that was written by someone who'd just joined the group and they wrote it solo, but it felt like a BMX Bandit song. And a lot of people, when you listen to the album didn't necessarily look at the credits, they'd go, oh, Love Me Till My Heart Stops," that's my favorite track in the new album. That's a great one. And I'd go, well, oh, I didn't write that actually. Chloe wrote that song and he'd go, all oh, right. But it's sort of like a thing of having that notion of being open to other people's creativity, but also knowing does this fit into this world that band Bandits creates?
0: Yes. And did you, um, I mean, because the other thing that you and um, Francis from the Vaseline's have in common, a lot of things probably, but I'm sure everyone mentions this, but obviously Kurt Cobain loved both bands, didn't he? Which must have felt quite... He must have felt quite chuffed, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think his favourite band um, was without question the Vaseline's. I was his kind of favourite, you know, Scottish band, possibly contemporary band. He loved the Vaseline's so much. But Eugene from the Vaseline's was also a member of BMX Bandits for a while. He loved Teenage Fan Club. Norman was a member of BMX Bandits. So I think... Yeah, I'm not saying he didn't like her records and things, but I think he was also sort of attracted to BMX Bandits because he really respected Eugene so much and he respected Norman so much. And he knew they always said they had so much fun when they were playing in BMX Bandits. And the pressure wasn't on them, the spotlight was on me. They could, they could be more in the shadows. And I think there was something about that idea that appealed to Kurt that sort of thing. He was so under the spotlight. And there was this band where people he liked went and had fun and the pressure was taken off him to a certain extent. And I think maybe there was something that appealed to him about that. But it was great, you know. And <coughs> <coughs> Sorry about all the coughing.
0: No, that's okay.
1: Yeah, it was... Um... It was great, you know. It continues to be really great. The, you know, the Kurt wore t-shirts, you know, and was very supportive vocally. I, that definitely has resulted in a lot of t-shirt sales. Yes. Also, I think a lot of people discovering the band. I mean, we've always been lucky that way, you know. Currently, you know, Tim Burgess over the last number of years of Charlatans been a massive supporter. You know, we played with the band quite a few times. We've played festivals that he's been involved in. He wears our T-shirts sometimes. You know, he says nice things about the band and defends us against people. And, you know, we're doing a Tim listening party for our album, My Chain. So, you know, we've always had people who really believe in the band and who have been prepared to say... You should give Beam Bandits a chance.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, when you come off, you know, with Creation and Theme Park, there'd been quite a few years before down at the Hop on Shoeshine Records. Was that a period where you had to sort of yeah. um, go and regroup mentally and spiritually?
1: Well, what sort of happened after we left Creation, I, was, I became a single dad uh, with, uh, you know, a. Uh, a baby who was a few months old, and obviously became older. Um, And I started thinking, well, I don't really want to go away in tour so much because, obviously, I'm this old parent of this young uh, child. Uh, So I got work through the BBC, working on the Mark and Lard radio show and Radio One, then working on things for Radio Scotland, then working on TV show for BBC I think it's called BBC Choice at the time. It became BBC Three. Uh, we made a music program called The Beat Room, and we had lots of people like the Pastels and Yola Tango and Cornelius and the Delgados and White Stripes and a whole plethora of bands coming in playing live in this TV show. We made 300 episodes in three years. There's an incredible archive. Um, so I was busy doing that stuff, but. During all of the, the years between Theme Park and Down at Hop, there's not a year where we didn't release at least one track. There would be at least one track on some compilation or limited edition single or something would come out. So we weren't particularly active and we would even maybe do a show you know, that year or two shows that year. And then, yeah, I think Francis and I... Decided because uh, he was the other main guy in the band at a time. It was time to make a new record, so we we made uh, down at the hop.
0: Yes, and did that, and um, what was the lineup for for that particular one? Was it quite a um quite a familiar one, or were were there new members joining?
1: Yeah, but well, uh, the. There wasn't really necessarily totally new members there was a guy called gabriel tellerman who had played on theme park and he was still in the mix but most of the album was um really myself and francis because francis is such a multi-instrumentalist there could be a track where you only needed you know a uh, my vocals and him to do pretty much all the instruments David Scott also became involved in the kind of production or co-production level, and occasionally he would be playing an instrument as well. And as I say, Gabriel was doing some guitaring. But mostly it was just really a kind of small, tight eh, unit you know, of Francis and I kind of steering the ship. Um, but it was strange. That album, which I really like, definitely had the beginnings of I think Francis and I, realising that our tastes or what we wanted to achieve with the band it slightly went in different directions in the time that we hadn't been working together so much. And it could either go two ways. It could go away of being Francis's band with me as a vocalist, and him having the main control and being the main writer. Or um, I could leave the band And then it wouldn't really be BMX Bandits, or it had to be my thing. And I think um, eventually I kind of came to the the conclusion that, yeah, if BMX Bandits was to continue, I didn't want to really be the singer in someone else's band. Uh, So I made the decision of, you know, having that conversation with Francis where it was sort of decided that I would go on uh, without his involvement.
0: Yes. Did that work out okay? It sounded like a quite tricky conversation, really.
1: It was difficult, and I still sometimes feel kind of sad about it because Francis, eh, probably more than almost anyone, not to belittle other people's contributions, had been the person who'd been the other longest kind of constant, and he'd co-written or written some of... Uh, the songs that a lot of people love the most, including myself. Um, But it was just time to do something else. And I think in reflection, uh, Francis thought it was the right decision. And I also think the other thing that made it actually easy was he was so generous about it. The next concert we played, and I'm sure this wasn't easy for him, Francis came along and he stood relatively near the front, not right at the front, so it was sort of threatening or odd. <laughs> you know, and you know, clapped his hands and looked like he was paying attention to show, and went around to everybody who was in the band at the time afterwards and went That was a great show, you know, that was a really great show tonight and things. And that was very genuine because you know it had been a big part of his life. So uh,
0: yes, just, uh,
1: you know, Francis and I, uh, you know, I, I I still count him as a, a good friend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the, what looks like one of the most important people in the band now is Chloe Phillip. Is mm. that is that correct in saying that, that she's one of the... Yeah, like...
1: yeah I mean, she's, well, she's very important because uh, one, you know, we're partners and so um, BMX Bandits music tends to be a reflection on my life, you know, and my kind of life story in music. Um, but, you know, Chloe plays lots of different instruments. Um, she's got an interesting quirky personality and dynamic on stage. You may have this dynamic between us. And, you know, she's uh, written and co-written songs. You know, but there continues to be other people who are very important. Stuart Kidd, who joined the band just after a kind of down at the Hawk was recorded. He was my main co-writer, probably on the last album. Jim McCulloch, you know, he uh, co-wrote most of the album uh, "Beam Expands in Space" with me. Um, and there's, you know, newer people who have joined the musical family since then. There's uh, Paul Kelly and Andrew Pate, um, David Scott. You know, was probably the other main collaborator through the records "My Chain" and "Beastings." So, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of people who, at that time that particular chapter of the BMX Bandits story wouldn't have existed without their
0: input. Yes, absolutely. And so, because you've, you know, the the last decade you did BMX Bandits in space and then forever on, um, was it Elfit? Elfat. Elephant.
1: Elephant Records.
0: Elephant Records. And now, with your next project, are you still on the same label?
1: Um, As far as we know, Elephant are keen to do... the the next record. Um, The album, my chain, as I say, is getting a vinyl reissue, and that's not on Elephant, that's on uh, a a label called uh, Interval, uh, who also released the Beam Expanded documentary film called Serious Drugs. And so that's kind of coming out as a kind of collaboration between Interval and uh, some friends of ours who have a pressing plant and label out in Norway. And that's probably my favourite Beam Expandits record, my chain. Uh, So I'm really happy. It it came out at a time where less people were making vinyl, and it was frustrating. It didn't come out in vinyl, so it is. It's coming out in vinyl now. So, and I think we've got a bit of a plan to try and reissue most of the stuff that's not currently available in vinyl.
0: Yeah. And what was it like having the film, Serious Drugs, you know, seeing yourself there? Because I sort of spoke to a few people who've had films out and this being quite, they found it quite strange, really. I mean, there was David Gedge with The Wedding Present and then Martin Phillips from The Chills, who sort of heard what other members of the band thought about being in the band with him. So um, he found that quite revealing. How did you find it?
1: I mean, I loved it. Um, it was a strange thing because the, the guy who made it... Um, Jim Burns had never made a film before in his life. And he came up to me in a record shop, Monorail Records in Glasgow, and told me how much Expandits it meant to him, and particularly actually the album My Chain. And he was saying how much it touched him. And we were talking about, you know, kind of hopes and dreams that, you know, people have when they're younger. And he said, you know, I used to love making little films with my granddad. Uh, When I was a kid, and I sort of sometimes wish I'd, you know, followed that dream through. And I said, "Well, you should make a film now. Why don't you make a film now?" And he's like, "You think I should?" And I was like, "Yeah, definitely. Just you should just make it for yourself." Um, And then later on, he said to me, "Oh, I've decided to make a film. I want to make it about being bandits And I said, "Great." And I said, "Well, here's the deal." I'll do everything I can possibly do to help you make it. I'll make myself available, put in touch with other people. But I don't want to see a scene of it until you end up screening it in your house or your local church hall or in the cinema. Because I want it to be your film about being an I don't want to interfere. And we stuck to that. And I think it took about five or six years And he learned how to do things as he went. A bit like we learned how to play our instruments and record stuff and things as it went. No, so some of the earlier scenes, the lighting's not quite as technically good or the sound's a little bit rougher at the edges. But it's got that spirit and it's got that heart that makes those other things not matter. Yes. You know, it's a beautiful film.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love those films. I remember there was one on Danny Fields, I think just called Danny, but that was it was a classic because he's been interviewed at one stage and he's, he keeps him to say, look, I've got to go, I've got to go to the toilet. And I just like the fact that they, they kind of left it in because that was probably what he was actually thinking when he was trying to answer a question. But again, it didn't it didn't have to be like, right, we're going to cut it all again, do it again. You know, it's like, oh, we'll just leave it, it's fine. And as a viewer and somebody who loves our BBC4 Friday night yeah. rock documentaries, you know, that's kind of... You don't mm. want to hear people going on about going to the toilet, but you do. You don't really mind if it's a little bit shoddy at times. It's it's rock and roll. The film
1: about Lawrence, who you know was in felt and Go Kart Mozart and Denham. I have not. Arabia.
0: I haven't seen that actually.
1: Or incredible. I, I, that's one of my big favourites. I mean, he's such an incredible personality. But that film was a was a lot of laughs in it, but it's also very poignant at times so well. I'd really recommend okay. trying to...
0: Um, I will track that down And did you, I mean because you've been in music And you've had the the world that is rock and roll Did you manage to navigate the world of drugs Drink relatively well Did you get sort of caught up occasionally
1: I've not had an alcoholic drink Before the day The day before I turned 18 Was the last time I had an alcoholic drink Um, I sort of I've always had a sort of bloody minded Kind of side to myself And um Mm. I remember the town I come from was quite rough and the drinking culture was so big and it was kind of post-punk mentality and I thought, a bit like, you know, there's that Ray Davis song, I'm Not Like Everybody Else. I was like, well, everyone else does this, so I'm not going to do it because I'm not like everybody else. So drinking is not going to be, I'm going to be in control of what I do and not go down that path. And so I stopped drinking every day I turned 18. And I haven't had an alcohol drink since. I've never been into recreational drugs. It's not some sort of you know a purer, holier than thou kind of thing. It just I didn't see the point. And sometimes I sort of felt like, why would I do that? I'm there already. <laughs> <laughs> I, things that a lot of people use to facilitate, you know, going on stage and making a fool of themselves and. Uh, saying things that we normally would keep, kind of undercover. I say those things. I don't need the assistance of this stuff, and um, you know, and I've no... Yeah, I've I've never had any attraction to it. A lot of my friends, you know, I've I've had a few friends uh, uh, who have kind of lost their health or lost their lives through kind of going down that path, and um, yeah, so... I don't feel like I've missed out.
0: Yes. Did you? I mean, just two things I was going to ask you. I mean, one thing that trips a lot of people up in the music world is kind of publishing and ownership of music. How did you navigate that one? Did that, did you have sort of varying success?
1: Yeah, very much so varying success. I mean, when we signed to Creation, big publishers came calling and the publishing company, um, who signed me up as a writer, you know, sent a kind of really complicated contract and, you know, we were advised, oh, you need to use this music business lawyer. He's he's the only guy really to use to decipher his stuff. So he was like, yeah, oh, well, this is good. This is good. Oh, this is all in your favour. This is really great. But didn't actually really explain it to me properly. So... The publishing company, it turned out, were expecting that I would be writing 100% of all BMX Bandit songs from that point. And if I didn't do that, if there was any co-writing at all, there was a clause that I would be in breach of the contract. And although I would continue to be their artist for them to gather funds for, they wouldn't have to pay me any further advances because I hadn't fulfilled what they expected. And of course... If it had been explained to me that they were expecting that, but I don't write 100% of those songs. I co-write. There's a a bunch of songs that are completely mine, but most of my songs are co-writes and collaborations, so this wouldn't work. But, you know, you're at the mercy of other people's bad advice, and when someone's presented as an expert, you go, well, they're an expert. They've apparently worked with big... And then, you know, big bands from all around the world. And then you would bump into someone who, you know, was much more successful, but this lawyer also represented. And then go, yeah, he's a nightmare. You know, we lost, like, all these thousands through this. We lost these thousands through this. I nearly lost my house because her advice was so wrong. But I guess at that time, there weren't that many music business lawyers uh, to choose from. <laughs> so you just got landed with someone who happened to be that, but wasn't necessarily particularly skilled.
0: Oh, that's annoying. God. So, do you own any of your music now? I mean, any bits of
1: it? Yeah, I own, I own the actual masters of a bunch of the albums. I own the master of uh, the then Japan album, uh, Star Wars. I own the master of um, My Chain. Uh, I've obviously licensed that to someone so it can come out in vinyl. I own beast things um, and uh, Elephant, who I totally trust and love as human beings, they own uh, the masters for you know, the in space and beam expanders forever but I'm totally happy because as I say they've been totally transparent and supportive. I've had a much longer relationship with them than just the last two records, you know, we've been friends and We've worked on projects, you know, over probably about the last twenty years. So, um, I'm I'm pretty happy about that. And I also own I also own my own solo album, which again is really an expanded album of sorts. I've an album called Be My Double, Frankenstein. I I own that one, and I own the album C86, which I've licensed to Glass Records, who are going to do a vinyl reissue of that very soon as well.
0: And just lastly then what would you say to an 18 year old self or if you could have said something to yourself back then you probably answered that haven't you Um, You know, that could have just whispered in your ear just a bit of worldly advice that you thought oh okay that's quite interesting that old man just mentioned something interesting to me I will make a note before doing it
1: I don't think it would be so much about the band stuff Um, I just sort of think You know, the the odds of whether you sell lots and lots of records and end up with a big mansion and a swimming pool, a lot of that's just almost luck and fate and timing and all these things that out whip your hands no matter what advice you have. I think most of my advice would be about life and it would be just, you know, I won't actually say what things are, but at this time, just make sure that um, you know you do this and don't do this because that, that may upset somebody a little bit. And then, you know, uh, you want to be nice to the people who are important to you.
0: Yes, that is always good. And um, to sleep comfortably at night without having any worries, that's the most important yes. thing.
1: Another big part of BMX band is, um, I think we very early on decided that we wanted to be the nice people because we always heard about difficult artists. And we were very strong about what we wanted to do and not necessarily compromising it. But if we went into a radio show or a TV show or went for an interview or were playing a gig, we would always be nice and friendly and reasonable with the sound man or with the person interviewing us or the person who was operating the desk in the radio studio we always just kind of made a point of saying thank you and please and you know uh, and we would see some of our peers doing the exact opposite of that and kind of as soon as you go in would go yeah the BBC is them and us. you know, they're like our enemy we despise them and you'd go we're just people trying to do their best, you know and uh, so I like I think most people who have encountered us along the way, I would hope, would go, "Yeah, they were nice people. Yeah, we like them."
0: Yes, well, karma—it's an important thing, and and it sounds like you're in a place now which is all going well.
1: Yeah, generally. I mean, I'm someone who's had a, not a history of, I guess, mental health problems involving depression and stuff, and it's helped feed a lot of my songwriting. But generally, I think, and also in the current situation, that I'm probably actually handling the current situation better than a lot of people are managing. I'm not feeling anxious in a debilitating way, but I think I'm able, because of my own situations in the past, able to be empathetic and understand to those who are finding it difficult and troublesome. Um so yeah, generally, uh, for me personally, there's a lot of things that are happen in the world that I really worry about and despair about. But my day-to-day life and living is generally pretty good.
0: Yes, and do you feel that? Because um, you mentioned sort of your depression, has that is that something that was has been with you all your life? Um, I think there are certain
1: periods where it kind of manifests itself I think, to be honest I think it is something within my wiring, but it tends to manifest itself over situations, so you know, if I'm going through a particularly difficult situation of a type, I'm maybe not I'm more likely maybe to fall apart a little bit than some other people not all situations there's other ones where people go wow, Douglas is totally in control here everyone else is kind of panicking, but um, he's please keep my level head, but yeah, I think issues of the heart still you know if i if i if I fall in love, I fall deeply
0: yes, but that, that that's always a tricky one, isn't it? You can't kind of, it's so irrational that moment
1: It's irrational, but yeah i'll I keep doing it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm very obviously settled right now, but in the past. You know, it's like um, people say, was it Uh, once bitten, twice shy? I definitely wasn't. You know, I could be bitten many, many times and I would still go, okay. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes, well, it's it's good. I guess it's good not to hang on to stuff too much. I have met a few people who just seem very bitter and twisted about something that happened probably now 30 years ago and you think, oh, they're not the most enjoyable people to be around. And as you get older, you kind of think, actually, this is just not... This is someone I'm going to just give a bit of a wide, a wide berth to, because, um, yeah, it's like, well, I know something happened 30 years ago, but you kind of need to move on sometimes. It's easier said than done, I know, but at the same time.
1: I I generally like to, as I say, not, I I never, you know, hold other people responsible for your own uh, lack of success.
0: Yes, that is very enlightened, actually. You could have gone to a Tony Robbins weekend and uh, that would have been a very good thing to uh, take responsibility. I think once you take responsibility for a situation, you empower yourself rather than sort of not taking responsibility and then somehow you don't empower yourself. So you just feel like the victim. And if you feel like a victim, you're always going to have that victim consciousness. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't feel like that. I feel I've had amazing adventures, amazing opportunities. I've not got my own TV show. I've not earned a lot of money. I've done things and seen things that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to do, you know. um, And I have spent my adult life making music um, and trying to make a connection with other people through that music. So that's all pretty good.
0: And that was me in conversation with uh, Douglas T. Stewart of the BMX Bandits. If you want to know any more information there, I've got various social media platform pages around... So check them out. I'm sure they'll be on, um, well, they've got material hopefully coming out soon. But thank you ever so much. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me that's any reason at all, well, make it nice anyway, um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C8, at C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, so you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. There you go. Check them out. They'll send you to sleep. Anyway, thank you for listening. Stay safe.